On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we talk with Red Evans, who is the CEO of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America. Uh, the GCSAA represents more than 19,000 superintendent members across the country. And uh, we talk with Red about the mission and vision of the GCSAA and some of the um, issues he's grappling with, which not surprisingly um, these days include sustainability and environmental concerns. Um, and uh, we talk about um, all the different roles he plays in that regard, as well as um, some of the challenges he sees for the game upcoming. And um, we also talk a little bit at the end about his amazing triathlon and mountaineering experience, including his goal to climb the top peaks in uh, all, on all the continents. And um, he has one left, uh, Mount Everest, which is on the docket for 2024. So all of that and more up next with Red Evans, CEO of the GCSAA, on this edition of Larry the Golf Guy. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy, and I'm really pleased today to be able to be joined by uh, Red Evans, the uh, CEO of the Golf Course Superintendent Association of America. Um, Red, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Looking forward to it, Larry. Um, so maybe just to kind of give people some context and go back uh, to the beginning, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and and how you first got introduced to golf. Yeah, I think everyone has their their golf story, right? And of how they came into the game. And um, you know, I think mine's uh fairly traditional. I had a grandfather that uh loved to play. He retired down in Phoenix and um we, we grew up uh in Prescott, Arizona. So it was just the hop, skip, and a jump down to the valley and so when my parents would drop me off to spend time with uh, my grandpa, I guess where I was, I was at Apache Wells Golf Course and um, riding around, you know, trying to 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 ask if I could actually steer the still st steer the golf cart right and sit on its lap <laughs> and um and you know every once in a while I'd bang a ball around and uh, just have have a ball and um, so that was really my introduction to golf was through my uh, through my grandfather who loved the game. He played four days a week and. Wow. And, uh, you know, one of those typical Arizona retirees had his own little golf cart and, you know, we'd drive there and, and meet up with his buddies and, and play a quick round of golf. And so uh, from there, you know, I, I just um, I, I, I grew to love the game. I, it wasn't something I did competitively, didn't play in high school, did other sports. But I think just that introduction at a young age, you know, brought it back, of, you know, full swing, no pun intended. Um, later on in my in my career where you know golf was a part of of what we did in the business world and so uh, it came in handy to to have some familiarity with the with the sport and the game so thanks absolutely, Grandpa. absolutely. Um, so that's cool um, so you mentioned you grew up in Prescott Arizona so you're out west uh, went to BYU um, I think you got your bachelor's in sociology and then master's in recreation management and leadership, which just sort of curious, what, what made you go kind of that direction and, uh, in your studies and what appealed to you about that path? 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, the two kind of go hand in glove. And and I, I knew from the beginning I was going to get a master's degree. And so I thought, you know, studying people and, and societies and, and kind of figuring out how people tick and, and why we do what we do is important and a good kind of foundation for going into what I love, which is sports, recreation and and, and leadership. And um, you know, that that master's degree was fairly broad. It not only dealt with recreation, but it dealt with uh, sports management. And so, um, you know, that led to uh, an internship while I was getting my master's degree with the Utah Jazz, uh, a man oh. by the name of Larry Miller. Uh, yeah, famous owned- Larry Miller. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I would just, I mean, I, you know, big sports guy, okay. spent a lot of time in Chicago um in fact i can't quite move the camera i have a photo of michael's last shot against the jazz you know when he knocked in the little kiss off brian russell's knee and stuff like that so um that's cool that you worked for them yeah so if you look at that picture closely i don't know if it's a zoomed in shot but um, if it's a if it's a little wider angle you'll see me uh courtside um i was actually working that game and I was the director of operations, so um, I oversaw all of the security and ushers and ticket takers and just all of the setup and and really everything that went on behind the scenes for a, a game. And so th- that was quite an era there with uh, yeah, the, for sure, Jordan and Scotty and and uh, you know, of course, we had Carl and and John Stockton, and just was so disappointed those two never got a ring and you know, was there for that whole journey, but it was uh, a great introduction into professional sports. And of course, if you know, Larry being the entrepreneur that he was, he owned also a WNBA team, which we right. ran. He uh, purchased the Salt Lake buzz, which was the triple uh, A to the Minnesota twins. Okay. Had a, uh, the golden Eagles hockey, uh, which was a, a farm league as well. So we were busy. I think every single night there was some kind of sporting event or a concert going on um, inside the uh, Delta Center at the time. So that was uh, really just a great internship and, and yeah. a great to kind of culminate my education and learn from you know somebody in the business that uh, really understood sports, understood you know what it means to be a fan and and to you know to to create those experiences for people. Yeah, absolutely. And boy, what what a home crowd you had. I mean, you used to drive Phil Jackson crazy with the, uh, I mean, that, that was one of the toughest places to play in the NBA. You, uh, the, the city just, uh, and the state so supported that team. So great internship. So, and then from there, um, take me sort of where you go from there. I know at some point after college, you end up in, um, with the city of Mesa, Arizona, I don't know if that if there was anything in between, but uh, maybe talk to us about kind of that part of your career. Yeah, you know, when you get into the into managing, you know, sports venues and 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 around sports, there's certainly different opportunities. And when you look at um, facilities, that was kind of my forte. I I was able to run facilities, and so I uh, went back to my home state of Arizona, where we put together what was called a commercial facilities division, which um, managed um, the city's uh, sports venue. So they had, you know, 12 aquatic centers. They had the uh, spring training uh, stadium for the Chicago Cubs. Right. That's right. Yeah. We put that into our portfolio along with uh, everything from convention centers to amphitheaters. But 
really, uh, and, and this is how we'll get back to golf, um, inside that portfolio were two golf courses, an 18-hole facility uh, called Dobson Ranch, and then a nine-hole facility uh, called Riverview Golf Course. And so uh, while I was, you know, fixated and spent a lot of my time with the Chicago Cubs and that that operation, I started gravitating uh, to the to the golf side of the business. And I, I found it just fascinating. I found that, you know, the people inside golf, what we were doing inside the community with whether it was supporting charity events or just, you know, the women's golf league and all that sort of things. I just really fell in love with it. And um and after 10 years of, of doing that, I thought, you know what, it's time just to focus solely on golf. And, and uh, you know, that's that's kind of the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, ended up with GCSAA, <laughs> and now it's all full-time, full-time golf. For sure. So, yeah, I think it was probably around 2009 that you went there as chief operating officer, and then um, some 18 months later, beginning of 2011, you're promoted to CEO um so i'm just sort of curious before we dive into uh, more fully the gcsaa how did you hear about this was it just part of a search that you kind of heard about i'm just curious i mean it's a great opportunity i'm just curious how it came about right yes yeah, a great story um uh, mark woodward who was uh the president of the association um, so it's it's much like, you know, other associations where they have an elected board and and then they have a paid staff. Well, Mark was one of those elected board members, um, but he was a superintendent for Dobson Ranch Golf Course. Oh, and wow. Golf okay. Course. And so um, he exposed me to the association um, uh, in a roundabout way. And a uh, long story short, he ended up leaving the city of Mason, went to work for GCSAA, and then um, I ended up going to work for him as the CEO, and then Mark uh, semi-retired and handed me the reins, as you said, about a year and a half, two years later, and um, it's been just a, a great ride the last 12 years of at the helm of GCSA as a CEO, so it was, uh, again, just one of those Cinderella stories where it was at the right place at the right time and, and knew the right people and, um, and, and, and loved it. Awesome. That's great. So um, maybe just let's uh, talk about kind of the mission and vision purpose of, um, of the GCSAA and kind of your role in that as CEO and kind of what, what even what a typical week is like for you. I'm sure no week is typical, but just maybe give the listeners kind of a sense of kind of um, the purpose of the organization and kind of how you go about effectuating that? Sure. Well, and, you know, Larry, knowing your audience, um, you know, primarily just avid golfers and that that love this game, I think, um, again, I, 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 I fell into that that category, right? I would I would play and, and wouldn't think too much about, you know, the who set the, you know, who, who cut the who cut the pins that day or, you know, who mowed the green. Right. Right. You know, and how's how are we getting water to the golf course? And, you know, how are we dealing with wildlife habitat, you know, corridors and all that sort of stuff? And and so really what I just described is what GCSA is about. We're on the side of managing the golf course. And so we wake up our 20,000 members that we have um, scattered across the globe, wake up every single day, 365 days a week to uh, or a year to um you know, take care of the golf course. And so um, that comes with uh, a myriad of, of, of challenges. Um, first and foremost, environmentally, uh, we have mother nature as our business partner and, 
Um, she can be ruthless, um, you know, and can throw some pretty nasty curveballs, whether it's hurricanes or or windstorms or torrential downpours, et cetera, that uh, our members have to deal with. And so GCSAA is the association that provides that professional training, that education, uh, even that certification for certified golf course superintendents that manage uh, the use of pesticides, nutrients, waters, uh, water management, conservation efforts, um, sustainability. So that whole list is is long uh, in terms of what our GCSA members do. And in our organization, um, you know, when you ask uh, about our mission, it's, it's first and foremost, it's about our members. We're here to serve them. Uh, secondly, we're here to advance the profession. Um, and I think that's something that should resonate with with your listeners and, and with golfers. Um, you know, when we ask them or I think if we were to ask them, you know, what what do they enjoy about a golf round? And certainly you want a hot hot dog and you want a cold beer. But at the end of the day, you really want good course conditions. Right. You want the greens to run true. You want the experience on the golf course to be to be good. And so that's a lot of pressure um, on our members to, to produce that sometimes with limited resources and, and labor, et cetera. Um, but that's that's what we do. We we advance the profession um, through education, innovation and research. And those are our, our primary focuses. Uh, and it's again, it's a lot of fun to do it with the team that we have here in Lawrence, Kansas. We have roughly about 85 employees. That, oh, wow. um, that's a lot. Uh, that, uh, you know, again, have different departments, whether it's environmental programs, education, advocacy, et cetera. Yeah. So I'm just thinking as I'm listening to you. So I'm a superintendent. I mean, do most of the superintendents uh, get certified through you folks? Um, is that kind of a normal process for people who are superintendents at golf courses? Yes. The global leader in terms of golf course management. And so we've been accredited, if you will, in terms of, um, you know, our education and, and what we do uh, to where you as uh, starting out in the business, you would uh, potentially get your four-year degree in, in agronomy or a like uh, science, and then go to work on a golf course and learn from a superintendent where you'd become a, an assistant a superintendent. And then over a uh, course of time, uh, you would become uh, a class A a GCSA member, and then you take um, a, an exam and do a portfolio and some other things to ultimately where you become come certified. And uh, certainly not all of our members are certified, but they're you know continuing to strive and get that education to where they can be the very best um, in the business. Neat. That's interesting. I hadn't appreciated it. It sounds, little sounds like the PGA, you know, analysis yeah. at least, you know, in terms of how the PGA certifies professionals. Yeah. Um you um, uh, and and I'm and I'm sure there's a um, a big continuing education element. I mean, things change, you know. And uh, you guys, I'm sure, are an ongoing resource for your members and and stuff as um, challenges come up, whether they're weather related or new pesticides or new environmental stuff. And it sounds like you're really a clearinghouse for all of that. Absolutely, you know, and and I think too that that. Um you know, something that a lot of us uh, take for take for granted, right? We think, well, it's just growing grass. You know, I do it in my yard every day. It's, it's pretty easy. But when, you know, you have uh, in the U.S., we've got over two million acres of, of uh, green space and, and turf grass. And you think of the myriad of diseases and drought pressures uh, that are on, you know, that are involved in, in growing that crop. 
there's a lot of innovation and a lot of science that goes into this. I think, um, you know, we're living in a time and certainly where you, you're at, Larry, in California, you know, me growing up in Arizona and you look at Las Vegas and even states now like Utah who are drought uh, stricken, um, this water is a significant issue. And yeah. we as a sport have got to rally around each other and support the science and the research that's going into bettering our, our grass types um, where they're less susceptible disease, where they're more drought tolerant. And, and not only that, just the practices that are employed, you know, to become smarter with that resource. And, and, you know, I think you're really starting to see that in this game, you know, to where we've got literally, you know, on our, on our devices, superintendents that can, you know, program and reprogram the irrigation system based on, you know, what's happening with the weather, um, where the humidity's at, did it just rain? How much did it rain? And, and those things can be adjusted on the fly, uh, very quickly. And so, you know, professionally managing those resources is so paramount uh, that we get that right going forward. Yeah. I mean, and the technology you kind of touched on was, is eye opening. I mean, we have, I don't, Mike Posey is our superintendent at Brentwood. And I mean, yeah. he's shown me the sort of, I think they're drone shots where he can sort of see the amount of moisture at different parts of the course and adjust things. And I mean, it's a long, uh, cry for when I was a kid and we used to have to dodge the sprinklers and there would just be you know yeah. things down the center of the fairway and those big sprinklers that would go around I mean it's just it's it's totally different you've touched on water that's a big issue out here I just want to talk a little bit more about it because that is a real challenge and and you know it's it's a political challenge you know people see these green spaces yeah. here using up water and stuff and you talked about drought tolerant um, or, or more uh, grasses that need less water. I assume part of the equation, at least from what I see around here, is taking turf out of play. Um, I mean, we've done that. I know at Brentwood, I you know, dozens of acres over the years taking out, and that's you know, and and it, and it looks great. You know, you sort of have these pine needles or these you know pine straw type areas, and um, I mean, what other kind of things do you see about? you know, how people are dealing with water, um, because, you know, there's a lot of folks, as I say, on the other side that look at this stuff. And, um, you know, whether it's Malcolm Gladwell writing that thing in The New Yorker, or Brent, which he was talking about, Brentwood, too, about, uh, you know, golf courses or whatever, there's a lot of folks on the other side of that equation. <laughs> yeah, no, there certainly is. And I think, you know, that's really our, our job, you know, as golfers and not just as associations, but to help educate and to kind of gain a better understanding of, uh, of the benefit, the environmental benefit of that land, of that green space. And so, uh, Larry, when I talk about sustainability, I, I really like to think of balance, right? We can't, you know, solve one problem and create another one. And so let's, let's take that, that, that example you just, you just shared. Okay. Well, you know, those that want the golf course to go away because they're using too much water, what would be put in its place uh, more than likely? And right. what, more than likely be put in place is going to be less environmentally sustainable, such as right. a strip mall or asphalt or, or parking lot, et cetera, to where, you know, now we have no opportunity to catch, to catch storm water runoff. And, and, right. you know, that, if you look at the design of golf courses, you know, you often wonder, well, why, I wonder why they put this here. Well, it's, it's a master plan of the community. It's, it's a, it's an area right 
where it can capture that stormwater runoff in some cases. And, and so those ponds and things that you see on there, they think automatically, oh, wow, look at all this wasted water. Well, that's water that's being recycled and going through the aquifer and being pumped back into the aquifer and being cleaned and filtered through the turf grass. And so I think once you gain a little better understanding of how that ecosystem is working, um, on that 150 acres, um, you know, you walk away going, wow, I, we, we need more of those. Um, we, we can't take, take this away. To your point, though, earlier, there's, there's still things inside that ecosystem that we can do that are, are you know, lead to more sustainable, sustainability and, and more conservation of, of water, such as, you know, taking some areas out of play that really you shouldn't be in anyway, or right. it was just over time, they kind of, you know, grew out and it looked right. nice and et cetera. But, you know, there's there's opportunities to find out through GPS tracking, you know, how many balls have been going in this area right. and in that right. area and do it the right way. And and to your point, there's some native, you know, grasses, there's some native, you know, areas that can be put in play that are absolutely beautiful. They kind of open up right. the golf course. And, right. and so that's that's certainly a practice that we're seeing more and more and more of. Yeah, absolutely. And and you saw a little bit of that, you know, with having LA Country Club yeah. on the national stage, um, the North Course for the US Open. And again, you know this, you know, you're familiar with out here, but the Barrancas and all those natural areas, which, you know, both serve the purpose you just alluded to. And I think it's a wonderful strategic element too. And yeah. you know, one of the reasons why, you know, the North Course is 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 great as it is. So um, you know, I think it all all of that dovetails together. Um I, I assume you know, we're kind of adjacent to the, the issue I'm gonna raise next, but so much government regulations on environmental stuff, especially out here in California. And I assume you guys probably must play a role both in advocacy and um, helping your members kind of navigate those slew of regulations, right? Oh, for sure. And, and it's really become, um, you know, a key focus of ours. When you look at kind of what we call our, our approach uh, to sustainability, it starts with data. Um, we spend uh, a lot of time collecting data on water use, uh, nutrient use, pesticide use, uh, energy use, land use. And so we've got to know where we're at. You know, what, what are these resources? Um, you know, where are we deficient? And, and then from there, uh, we really infuse best practices into our operations. And so GCSAA has worked with whether it's the USGA, the PGA Tour, the PGA of America, uh, supporting our foundation that has created best management practices for all 50 states, California being one of them. And so we've taken decades and decades of scientific research on how to manage effectively a, a golf course and you know put it into these practices. And so uh, we're working to get all of our members to employ those at their individual golf facilities. And then to your point on advocacy, that becomes the springboard for us to advocate, um, to really demonstrate that it's, it, it, it's, it's this is how we're managing these assets versus just, hey, well, trust us. Um, hey, here's what we're doing. No, now we can actually articulate it. We can document it. We can show how we're managing wetlands, how we're managing buffer zones, how we're managing, 
you know, our, our, our chemical storage, et cetera. And so it's, it's really imperative that, um, again, the industry gets behind this because I, I think it is um, the, obviously the right thing to do, but it's going to ensure that our sport is, our sport is, is sustainable going, going forward. And I think, um, you know, that's really my, I guess, invitation to, to your listeners is that, you know, as golfers, um, you know, get involved. Um, you know, I, I look at other sports that I've been involved in, whether it's fly fishing or hunting or whatever. And, you know, you, you, you quickly realize as a fly fisherman that, you know what, if I'm not involved in making sure that stream is clean, I don't have a sport. There's no, there's no right, much. Right. And I think golf, we've just taken for granted that, Hey, yeah. I'm going to put my green fee. I'm going to show up and it's going to be here. Well, those days are, are past, especially yeah. in California. Um, yeah. We've got to be able to understand our sport, what it means um, to the community, the charitable impact that it's providing, the jobs, the 2 million jobs that it's providing. It's the whole equation that goes into that, that golf course that we need to be able to articulate. And our members, I'm extremely proud of, of what we've been able to do, Larry. Um, if you look at all 535 congressional districts in the United States, uh, we are aligning a GCSA member with every member of, of Congress. Oh, wow. So that relationship now becomes one-on-one, -on -one, um, just as you and I are talking, and it becomes real to where they can sit down, invite them out to the property. Um, they can see literally the water quality. Um, they can see the jobs that are being, uh, the employment that's going on. They can see the wildlife. And so it's really changing the vernacular and changing the the stereo, some of the, getting rid of some of the negative stereotypes by getting that member of Congress out to the golf course. And, and that's, uh, I think, uh, a great, great work that's being done by the GCSA grassroots ambassadors. That's a great idea. I wasn't aware. That's fantastic. I love it. Um, and and there really are. It really is a story you can tell me. You touched on it a few minutes ago, but I mean, it really resonates with me when you talk about runoff water and you know and what would be there if the golf course wasn't there. I mean that. And again, you know California well enough. That's a big issue out here. I mean, we just we just had you know the remnants of this hurricane, which was more like a tropical storm when it came yeah. to us, but dumped a lot of water. And you know, you see all the articles you know, some overwhelming percentage of it just runs off into the ocean. And, you know, yeah. and that's what happens when you have asphalt and all the other stuff. And that's not what's happening on our golf oh. courses. So it's a great point. I, I agree. Um, <clears throat> I, I I know, I think I saw that there is a, um, a coalition, is it We Are Golf, uh, that maybe you can talk about kind of what that is and, and the role you guys play in that and what that organization does. Yeah. So the, the We Are Golf Coalition um, has been around now for over a, over a decade. It's evolved now to the American Golf Industry Coalition. So that's its um, new home and, and new name. But, uh, you know, as we talked earlier about uh, the Utah Jazz and the NBA, you know, that that league is is that league. It's all kind of nested inside the NBA and the MLB is all nested inside the MLB. But when it comes to golf, we've got the alphabet soup, right? We've right. got the USGA, we've got the PGA Tour, we've got the PGA of America, we've yeah. got GCSAA, and 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 there's just a, a myriad of associations and 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 bodies that that uh you know support the game. And so um it's it's just it's necessary to bring together a coalition to where those bodies all sit together 
and, and create a unified voice, right? So if we were all going to Capitol Hill with a different message on environmental sustainability and, you know, one day it's this group, the next day it's this, we wouldn't get anywhere. And so having that coalition, um, you know, again, to not just talk about environmental issues, but whether it's taxation, business issues, um, labor uh, issues that are facing our game, you know, that that's the that's the conduit, Larry, that we use um, to to be the voice for golf is that American Golf Industry Coalition, of which I've sat on now for, I think, 12 years. Got it. Well, that's great. Yeah, that coordination is definitely important. Um, kind of maybe looking ahead and, and, and at the present and future both. I mean, kind of what do you sort of see? as sort of the biggest challenges, you know, over the next five, 10 years for the, you know, from the perspective of the superintendent in our game? Yeah. So, you know, and I, and I say this really um, through, through the collection of data, it's not just Red Evans's uh, viewpoint of this. We, you know, ask our members who are out there literally boots on the ground right there in, in the communities across America, you know, what are your challenges? So that very question you just asked me, I can, I can answer, you know, based on our, our membership and it is number one labor um, is the number one issue that they're dealing with. And then number two is what we've been talking about environmental pressures. So the water, um, you know, pesticide use, et cetera, regulations, um, uh, that whole gamut of, of government affairs. So th those two are, are, you know, again, they're, they're pretty mackerel, you know, in terms of their challenges. And, you know, I, I, it's not just golf that's struggling with figuring out, you know, where the labor pool is going to come from. And, and I think, we, you know, we can figure out how to get a warm body in there and, you know, and, and get, you know, that level of employee. But where we have some concern is you look at some of the trends of those that are not going to college anymore, uh, it's become too expensive. And, and, you know, how do we as, as an industry, you know, gravitate or, or have them gravitate to, to us as a, as a trade, as a profession. And so that's really the next, uh, well, we're working on it tirelessly right now. Um, and we're behind, I, I think we had the traditional means you'd go to college, you'd get your degree, you'd go to work on a golf course. And now that that's slowed down, you know, we're having to look at other pipelines. Um, so we're working a lot with high schools, um, mm -hmm. uh, some curriculum infused in some of their extracurricular activities, whether it's with the FFA, uh, we're working with the veterans group, mm -hmm. uh, those men and women that are coming off of their active tour of duties. Um, we have an education uh, process for them to get uh, some exposure to, to the game, the golf course maintenance and, and get them jobs. So um, that, that's a lot, um, you know, but, uh, yeah, the labor number one, and then number two is this whole, uh, you know, challenge on resources and water and, and how we're effectively managing, you know, the, these assets, which, um, it, it's going to get harder and harder and harder. Yeah, no, I bet. That's interesting. I hadn't focused on the labor stuff, but that makes, that makes total sense. Um, I, let me just, one of the things that sort of popped in my mind as I listen to you talk is sort of, um, and this may be kind of somewhat in between you guys and, and the golf architect, but I'm sure you play a role in this in terms of kind of what you see as trends in how golf courses are maintained these days. I, I will just, uh, let me tee it up for you this way. And this may be more a function of where I'm sitting out in the West. Um, but, you know, when I grew up, and I grew up in the Northeast, I mean, you know, thick turf, not a lot of run out with the ball, 
heavily watered, you know, the thick rough and everything. Um, and, um, you know, I haven't been played actively back in where I grew up in a long time, but, you know, out here, and you see this not only here, but, you know, when you look at some of the renovations, like what Gil Hans did at Southern Hills and, and, and Todd Eckenrode, who's a local architect here in Southern California, when he redid us and, and, and spiel the courses, much more of a ground game, much more firmer turf, much more running out. And, and even when you hear a John Bodenhammer talk about the U.S. Open site this year and the wider fairways, because, you know, we want to see the challenge to golfers, not just when the ball's in the air, but when it lands and let it run out. Right. And, you know, the genius of the George Thomas design over there is, is you know, is, is having the wide fairways, but the ball keeps running. And obviously that requires firmer turf. I mean, that's sort of a trend and, you know, more chipping areas. And, and like I said, I mentioned Southern Hills, you saw, you, you see the before and after pictures, a lot of these courses they've renovated. I mean, it doesn't look anything like it. Everything's much more natural and the ball just runs. And I mean, do you sort of see that from where you sit or is that more of a geographical thing or is that more of a general trend? I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I, obviously, you know, you mentioned Gil, and I think, um, you know, he's got uh, so many projects underway right now where he is in, employing that that strategy. And I think, you know, there's quite a few other architects that are doing the same thing. And for me, um, it's it's so needed. Um, and it's it's yeah. kind of like the the old adage, right? The more things you know stay the same, the more they they change. <laughs> or, or the more they change, the more they stay the same. However, you want to say that, but go back to the beginning of time, how right. golf was designed, what you just described is, right. is golf. I mean, I mean, we saw this at me. So you could watch the Walker cup and see St. Andrews and the, the fun just starts when the ball hits the ground. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it would run into different areas and, and, you know, where it's, where it, it, it's so, so I'm a fan of that. Um, yeah, you know, I, am too. I, I just think that, you know, not only is it the way that it was originally, you know, crafted, but from a sustainability standpoint, right. you know, it's not just, you know, the, you may have to, you know, you may use less water because the turf's firmer and faster. But when it comes just to labor, you know, and, and you're looking at the way the bunkers are structured or you're looking at the height of cut and it's it's not this stair step, a myriad of things. And we've got to, you know, this is going to change and that's going to change. Right. And so if you think of it from just a maintenance standpoint in terms of time, uh, fuel effort that's put into maintaining the course and not to say that those are easy to maintain, but they're, you know, they're not as, as manicured. They're not as, as finite um, as you described right. you know, with, with, you, you know, your earlier, earlier right. experience. So, um, you know, and it's not for everybody. I mean, every membership is, you know, it has differences and, and of, of opinions, but I, I think we're going to continue to see more and more of that just from a standpoint of how we got to use, how, how we will have to use the land right? Uh, and, and what we're allowed to water, you know, Vegas, for an example. I mean, there's strict ordinances in terms of how much turf you can have on a property. And so, you know, the only way you're going to be able to create a new golf course is by what you just described, you know, right. having out areas and, and areas that, you know, you've got to, carry etc so it's uh it's kind of fun it is and I, I i love it i think it's 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 it, it is it is great um i'll get you out of here on this because i can't i can't leave uh our conversation without asking you about this triathlons and mountaineering 
um it's impressive you still uh do those things or i mean i know you've done ironman triathlons which is amazing well you still have time to sort of do any of that stuff well i don't know that i have time um but i make it um somehow with my uh, rigorous travel schedule i've had to slow down on the ironmans just because uh I know, Larry, you've uh, traveled and those hotel pools um, aren't quite Olympic distance, right? That's for um, sure. <laughs> so, uh, you know, swimming in, in, the, in, the, in the Holiday Inn pool there doesn't doesn't quite work. Um, but uh, needless to say, I've, I've shifted gears and started climbing mountains uh, about six years or seven years ago. And so I've got a goal to conquer all of the highest uh, summits of, of each continent. So just uh, finished Denali last year and oh, wow. the year before and then uh the big the big ones this coming year we're doing everest um and wow uh, so we'll be uh have the team put together and we're starting our our training and logistics now for for the big the big one wow i'm impressed uh that's gonna be amazing um when are you scheduled to do that so our permit will start april 3rd of 2024 so it's uh about 55 days that you plan um, in terms of climbing Everest, just with, you know, weather days and, and challenges, um, you know, on the mountains. So uh, we'll be, uh, we'll be in our, in our mountaineering boots, April 3rd, 2020. And this is part of a group that I, yeah, so I've got a, a team that we've been uh, doing mountaineering with and, you know, kind of doing some of these bigger mountains and uh, knocking, knocking them out one at a time. There's a lot of them. Wow. Wow, that is amazing. I'm impressed. Well, that's awesome. Um, good for you that um, you're still doing that. And uh, boy, every that's a select club to climb ever. Um, well, we've uh, we've been able to take uh, on a few of them. Uh, you know, a, a ball up there, and uh, I've got a a club that I've got to figure out how to lighten it because it's a little heavy. But it it's a telescoping. You're you're going to be like Alan Shepard. Yeah, you know, uh, like you're just ball like Alan Shepard did on the moon. You can sort That's of right. take a telescoping. See, I mean, you know, it won't have quite as dramatic effect with the lack of gravity, but you can sort of take your shot at the top of Everest. I love yeah. it. Yeah, we're at twenty nine thousand feet. The air's a little thin, so we'll see. Little thin, yeah. It'll carry. It'll yeah. definitely get a little more carry. That's I for think, sure. Yeah, I think we'll be able to get to the next hole somehow. I love it, Rhett. Well, that's fantastic. Well, listen, I want to thank you. This has been great. Thank you so much for making the time uh, to chat about it. Thank you for everything you do for the game and um, continued success. Well, thanks, Larry. And I'll just end with this. Uh, appreciate your getting the word out and, and taking interest in what superintendents do. Uh, they, uh, they again, they, they're, they're an unsung hero of our game, um, what they have to go through every day to make this game uh, sustainable and playable. So, on uh, September 12th, be sure to thank your golf course superintendent. It's National uh, Thank a Superintendent Day, and we're, uh, we'll are we be on the Golf Channel talking about it. So, Oh, awesome. I will definitely thank Mike that day, as I often do. do. He does a great job. Thank you so much, Red. Appreciate it. All right. Talk to you later, Larry. Take care. Bye -bye.